Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Micah chapter 7 this morning. Micah chapter 7. Thrilling to be here with you this morning. So thankful uh, to Pastor Justin for the warm invitation to come uh, and preach in this pulpit. My only regret is one of the highlights of vacation is often to get to hear him preach on a Sunday morning. And I'm thankful that he delivers feasts for you all uh, each and every week. As I fellowship with pastors around the country, uh, I'm learning very quickly that there is a pastor shortage in America today. Uh, there is a famine for the Word of God. There are people that are hungry for the Word of God. Uh, the saints are growing. The work of evangelism is going forward. Uh, but there's a pastor shortage in America. And so uh, thank God that God has given your assembly pastors uh, that lead and shepherd you well and that love God's Word. Uh, our church has much in common with your church, including uh, members, both previous and current. And I know Larry and Lisa Klein are here today, and I think I saw uh, Matthew and Brooke uh, Butel earlier. I see them. They were members at our church during their college years. And then uh, Bruce and Joy Komarowski helped establish uh, our church, Lakewood Baptist Church in Pewaukee, Wisconsin. So we share members uh, but we also share missionary partners. And so as you prayed uh, for the Schleyline family this morning, it was thrilling to get to pray along with you because uh, we have the same investment. Uh, Lakewood and your church were invested together uh, in the work there in rural South Africa. And so uh, just thrilling to think about the connections that we have in the family of Christ and uh, the, the joint effort that we have in spreading the gospel and making disciples until Jesus comes. We've been enjoying our time down here in Florida. When we got off the plane, uh, I went into a Walgreens and got one of those easy passes for driving your roads. And uh, the, the elderly lady behind the counter said, now, now you try to stay warm, okay? And uh, she didn't realize. <laughs> it felt like needles were piercing our faces when we left Wisconsin. And so we're wearing shorts this week, even though you all are all in your, your winter jackets. I've been out running every morning and people are in parkas and I'm over here in a tank top and just loving it down here. So you all are blessed. Could go on all day about the connections and the friendship that we have in Christ, but let's look to the Word of God together. Micah chapter 7. I know that Pastor Justin has been preaching through the minor prophets. I also know that he spent, I believe, two weeks here in Micah, and so I'm trusting that the Lord will harmonize our messages together and that he will leave us exactly the challenge that we need this morning. And so your general familiarity with the book is going to, going to allow us to really dive right into it this morning. And as we jump to the end of Micah's message in chapter 7, please understand that Micah is reflecting on a ruined society. It's a society that is ready to collapse from both spiritual and political decay. And so let's read our text together, beginning in Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. The Word of God says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do its well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. 
The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them is like a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come, and now their confusion is at hand. Verse 5, put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms, for the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now, if we had time this morning to read all of chapter 3, you would see material that is so similar that it would almost feel like a deja vu experience. You see, back in chapter 3, Micah described uh, a society that was ready to collapse from spiritual and political decay, and so it really invites the question for us this morning, why would God-inspired Scripture appear to be so redundant? Why would Micah cover the same sort of material twice in such a short amount of space? Why would the other prophets that you've surveyed in your series on the 12, why would they uh, contain sections that sound almost just like Micah's? Why the redundancy? And as I've been considering and mulling over this question recently, the thought struck me, this side of the coming kingdom of Christ God's people will almost always find themselves living in ruined, decaying societies. Could I say that again? This side of the coming kingdom of Christ, God's people will almost always find themselves living in ruined, decaying societies. And so the Holy Spirit planned for this sort of content to appear over and over again because this is where God's people will most usually find themselves. You see, Micah 7 is exactly the sort of situation that believers will usually be in. Remember, Christians, we are sojourners who are looking for a better city, Hebrews chapter 11. We have a dual identity as chosen exiles. We've been reminded from 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. In other words, we are God's elect ones. We're chosen by him. We're very precious to him, but yet we're also exiles on this earth. We are currently residing away from the fullness of the coming kingdom of Christ, of which we're already citizens. And so to put this in Jesus' more simple words, we are truly in this world, and he has not willed to take us out of it, but yet we're never part of this world, John chapter 17. Friends, this is why we have passages in Micah in all of Scripture that cover such similar material about the collapse of human societies and about living among corrupt peoples. You see, since these are the sorts of situations that almost always face God's people, we must learn to understand these situations, and we must learn to live in these societies in a way that pleases God. And so this morning, let's consider a sermon entitled, Living in a Corrupt Society. Living in a Corrupt Society. And as we consider living in a corrupt society, would you consider four statements with me this morning? The first three are simply observations. 
They're simply observations about how corrupt a society can become and what it looks like to live within such a place. But the last statement is a call to action. It's how the righteous can and should live in such a corrupt situation. And so notice with me first this morning, society can be so corrupt that the righteous may think that they're alone. Society can be so corrupt that the righteous may think they are alone. I trust you'll see this with me as we reread verses 1 and 2. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been cleaned, gleaned. There's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind." They all lie in wait for blood. Each hunts the other with a net. Now imagine with me that you walk into the door of your house. You've worked a really long shift. It was unexpected and mandatory overtime, and you've missed dinner. But when you walk into the house, you can smell the family specialty. I mean, you would know that smell anywhere. It's, it's, it's one of your favorites. It's shredded barbecue chicken in the crock pot, and so full of anticipation, you go over to the crock pot, and you you lift the lid off the crock pot, and guess what you find? You find a whole big batch of nothing. You see, your family has eaten it all, those dirty savages. (laughs) There's absolutely nothing left for you. That's a modern example of what's going on in verse 1. Micah walks through a vineyard just after the time of harvest. He expects to find leftovers in the field, but there is nothing for him to eat there. He can't find any fruit at all as he expected to find. Now, the word as in verse 1 signals for us that this is a metaphor. Micah feels like someone would feel when they're expecting tasty fruit, but yet to their great disappointment, there's absolutely nothing left Why would he feel this way? Well, he tells us in verse 2, just as he searched for grapes and found nothing, so he has searched the land of Israel and he can't find any godly people there. They've all perished, he said. Just as he searched for figs and found nothing, so he searched the land of Judah and he can't find anyone upright, the text says. That is, he can't find anyone who's faithful to the covenant relationship with Yahweh. Society is so corrupt that Micah feels completely alone. In fact, he's starting to think, I'm the only one left. Now, if you remember the context of Micah, Micah has just announced God's judgment in the previous chapter. And now he doesn't believe that anyone is left in Israel who actually believes Yahweh, who actually lives loyally in covenant relationship with him. He says, I've searched and I've found nobody. And for the whole Bible reader, it's almost impossible not to hear echoes of the episode between Yahweh and Abraham when the Lord revealed to Abraham that he was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in judgment, and Abraham said, far be it from you, O Lord, to put to death the righteous with the wicked, and you'll remember the negotiation, as it were, that took place between Abraham and the Lord. He would not destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah if there could be 10 righteous people. 
But here in Micah, the prophet doesn't seem to believe that he could find even one. The prophet Jeremiah seems to be almost just as pessimistic. He writes in chapter 5, verse 1, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search your squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Can you find one, Jeremiah says. My wife and I love a cold room for sleeping. And so even in Wisconsin, when it's below zero, we have a fan that is on every single night, right? So you get the, the room as cold as you can, and then you pile the blankets on, and it's much more comfortable, right? And so um, earlier this season, I was walking across our bedroom at night in the dark with bare feet. Do you know the layout of your house well enough to do that? Do any of you do that, right? You can just walk everywhere in the dark with bare feet, And in the middle of coming back from the restroom in the dark, I got my toes stuck in something sharp. It's dark. The fan is on. And for a moment frozen in time, I thought my toes were stuck in the fan. It's this horrible feeling, and it's going through my mind. So this is what toe decapitation feels like, (laughs) all right? And as it turns out, as Emily turned the light on, because I was like, I'm stuck, I'm stuck, and she got up and turned the light on for me. And as it turns out, my toes were not actually stuck in the fan. It was an uncomfortable situation still, though, because my toes were stuck in one of these. (laughs) Now, this was not a fun situation still. But in actuality, it was not nearly as bad as I first perceived it to be. I want to be careful here. Micah is a true and godly prophet of Yahweh. Every word of this prophetic book is inspired by God and is absolutely true. But here, it seems that what is inspired by God is a true prophet's pessimism towards Israel. And he's not the only prophet who ever thought the situation was worse than it really was. Do you remember how pessimistic Elijah was during King Ahab's reign? He had just gotten the news that wicked queen Jezebel is going to come and try to execute him. And while the angel of the Lord was ministering to this depressed prophet, here's what he muttered back to the Lord in 1 Kings 19. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've thrown down your altars, they've killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and now they seek my life to take it away. Doesn't that sound just a little bit like Micah's perspective in verse 2? He says, I searched Israel. I couldn't find anyone godly. I couldn't find anyone upright. They're all just ready to catch each other in nets and defraud one another. But back with Elijah, the Lord reminded him, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, Elijah thought there were zero, but there were actually 7,000 people who still loved the Lord. Now, friends, my point is not to say that the people of Israel were actually pretty righteous and that Micah was overreacting to their sin and their corruption. 
No, please don't misunderstand me. My point is that the land of Israel was so widely corrupt that Micah felt as though he were the only one left who truly loved the Lord. And friends, this just wasn't true. It never is true. God always has his remnant of true believers. His work of election cannot fail. But the fact is, times can get so dark that you feel like you're alone. Times can get so dark when you feel like nobody else wants to truly follow God. And it's in times like these when God's people must stick together and love one another fiercely. But I'm getting ahead of myself this morning. Not only can society be so corrupt that the righteous may feel completely alone, but number two, society can be so corrupt that the righteous may get hurt that the righteous may get hurt. Remember that Micah said in verse 2 that he felt like he was prey being hunted. And notice what he says now in verses 3 and 4. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man, man utters the evil desire of his soul, and thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them, a thorn hedge, the day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. I don't know about you guys, but if my cell phone rings and the number is not preloaded into my contacts, I don't answer it. Are you with me on that? Are any of you with me on that? I could have just said, I don't know about you guys, I'm a millennial, I don't answer my phone. All right, because we, we don't. If you want to get a hold of us, text us. But if I don't recognize the number, there's no way I'm answering my phone. But in the earlier days of our church, my phone was the church phone because we planted the church. And so I had to answer my phone. And about five years ago, I saw a local area code come up on my phone on a Saturday afternoon, and I answered it only to be angrily confronted by the man on the other line. He wanted to know why I had called someone that he loved, an elderly person in his life, and why I had tried to scam them out of money and personal information. I, imagine, I remember being floored. I, 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 was, I was shocked and I was left sort of stammering, sir, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I haven't even made any calls today. And when he simply wouldn't let the matter rest and take my word for it, and he kept beating me into the ground verbally, I finally said, look, I'm a pastor in this community. I don't know what else to say. Someone must have figured out some way to make it look like it was me calling your elderly aunt, but it was not me. And he said, you're a pastor? Okay, this is truly crazy because I'm a Catholic priest. Did you hear the joke about the Baptist pastor that tried to rob the priest's aunt? Okay. <laughs> Scammers these days are so good at scamming, aren't they? They will just prey on the naive. They'll prey on the elderly, and they'll pretend to be you. And it's so maddening. These people are masters at deception. They're skilled thieves. They're smart scam artists. And this is similar to what Micah is describing. In verse 3, he says that the people of Israel do evil so very well. That is, they're really good at sinning against each other. 
Beyond this, they do evil with full gusto as well. They even use both hands for seemingly added force, as it were. And even further still, they do evil in tandem together. That is, they cooperate and they work one with another in order to defraud other people. They're co-conspirators in their evil ways. Well, how does this work? Well, in verse 3, we see that a man of some power or worldly standing, he has an evil desire in his heart, and he is able to carry it out without any earthly consequence because he can bribe the rulers of the city to look the other way. The law of Moses was crystal clear on this sort of action. If the leaders take bribes, then those who are truly in the right will never be able to get true justice. You see, it's not the innocent people that resort to bribery, is it? It's the guilty people. And so a society that is built upon bribes is a society in which righteousness and justice do not often prevail. Listen to how Scripture warns about this in the Mosaic Law. Exodus 23.8, you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Deuteronomy 16, verse 9, You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Furthermore, bribery is antithetical to who God is. It's against his character. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. And so notice how Micah describes these powerful men in his corrupt society, the strong men, the rulers, and the judges, who are all in cahoots to pervert justice through bribery. He says in verse 4, the best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. You see, Micah thinks that these leaders of Israel are about as pleasant as a thorn in the hand and about as useful as a briar in the rump. In fact, if you get involved with these guys, don't expect justice. Expect to get hurt by thorns instead. If you have principles and you won't play the game at their level, then even engaging them may bring you pain. They're so good at evil that righteous people just end up as victims caught by their thorny fangs. And so sadly, as we've seen throughout Micah, this was a society built upon bribes and perverted scales. And when this happens, the righteous cannot expect the structures of society to have their back. Even governmental leaders may stab them. Not only can society be so corrupt that the righteous may feel completely alone, that the righteous may end up getting hurt. But notice number three, society can be so corrupt that the righteous may not be able to trust others. Look at verses five and six. I trust you'll see this again. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Now in verse 5, when Micah says, put no trust in a neighbor, he's not talking about the ultimate trust that's reserved for God alone. 
No, as the second line makes clear, he's talking about having confidence in someone. That is, being able to actually count on them at a practical level. And so this society was so corrupt that the sacred bond that should exist between the closest of human relationships, this bond had disappeared. Excuse me. (coughs) The second line of verse 4, the day of your watchman of your punishment has come, now their confusion is at hand. This describes the beginning of God's judgment upon Judah, with their enemies taking some of their cities, breathing down their necks, and possibly even laying siege to the city of Jerusalem. And during this time of external pressure, during this time of emergency and chaos, the people should have been able to turn to their closest human relationships for help. But instead, the fabric of their society had been eroding for so long that in the moment of pressure, they literally had nobody to trust. Micah says that they shouldn't trust a neighbor, even though the law of Moses taught this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. They were trying to love their neighbors, but they couldn't count on any of their neighbors to love them in return. Micah's already said that they're just as likely to set a snare for you or hunt you down than they are to actually love you like they love themselves. Sadly, Micah also says that they shouldn't trust in their friends either. They shouldn't trust in their friends during this time, even though the Proverbs describe this sort of loyalty from friends. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for exactly moments like this. Moments of adversity. And so not only can a man not trust his own friends, but he can't trust his own wife. Instead, in this corrupt society, a husband should even be careful what he says to the one who lies in his arms. For those of you that enjoy good and loving marriages, can, can you think of a safer place in the world to share something personal or confidential than in the quietness of the night holding your spouse close to you? I cannot. But this society was so corrupt that spouses could not even trust each other. And the same goes for parents and children. The law of Moses commanded in Exodus 20 verse 12, honor your father and your mother. But instead of honoring and caring for parents, In Micah's day, parents could not count on their children because they would treat them with contempt and stand against them and said, and so Micah looks at this society and he says this, it seems like there's nobody to trust, nobody to count on, not even the closest human relationships, not your neighbor, not your best friend, not your children, not even your spouse. This is truly one of the positive and encouraging texts of Scripture, isn't it? Can you even imagine a society like the one Micah describes in these verses? Can you imagine living in a context where everywhere you turn, it seems like nobody wants to follow the Lord Jesus? Can you imagine a society in which you are bombarded by so much evil on a regular basis that if you are not careful, you may develop this same depressed prophet syndrome? 
You may either do a full-on Elijah and say, I'm the only one left and I want to die. Or you'll do the lesser Micah version and you'll say, I've searched everywhere and there's nobody left, only me. Have you ever been there? When it seems like the collective world is losing its mind with its incessant calling evil good and calling good evil? Maybe you know that there's more left than just you, but you really don't think that there's enough of us left to even matter. Now remember, Israel was a theocracy, and so their politics and their religion were combined completely. And so if the nation was corrupt, so was its worship. And so I wonder, do you ever look around at the church at large, perhaps the church in America, and think rather pessimistically, there's just so few good churches left. I mean, we're here at at Faith or here at Lakewood, we're the only ones that truly believe the truth and want to follow the Lord and live righteously. Can you imagine living in a society where you can't trust governmental officials to actually care about true justice? A biblical definition of justice? Can you imagine living in a world where oftentimes the righteous person is the one who gets prosecuted or sued while the wicked are quite literally getting away with murder? Remember the guy that was prosecuted for the undercover videos at Planned Parenthood? Can you imagine living in a world where people are skilled at doing evil, they're enthusiastic about it, and they're even networking together to make it happen? Like a world in which the greatest technology equipment you can imagine gets harnessed in order to broadcast graphic sexual images into our homes. Like a world in which medical equipment and skilled doctors who have great understanding of the human body misuse both in order to murder babies. Can you imagine a world in which it sometimes doesn't even pay to involve the authorities because some of them aren't going to care and they may even end up hurting you instead of those who harmed you? Again, since Israel's spiritual and religious life were a unified whole, it's right to make application here to church leadership as well. Can you imagine a world where people are being hurt by so-called churches that enable abusers and set up cultures of control and manipulation? Can you imagine living in a society where the family itself is crumbling, a society in which parents are willing to kill their own children, but then they act so shocked when their children kill each other? A society of domestic violence, a society of cheap divorce, a society in which husbands and wives are not loyal to each other and adultery is commonplace, a society where children don't have a high regard for their parents and parents don't spend time with their children or nurture them or love them, a society in which true friendship is rare and in which many people don't even know the names of a single neighbor on their block. Can you even imagine a society like this? You see, the situation in Micah's time is not all that different from our own. And so what should the righteous do when society is growing this corrupt? How are we going to make it? How are we going to get through such a time like this? 
Micah tells us in verse 7. And his message is just as relevant to us as we follow the same Lord thousands of years later. Number four, when a society is corrupt, the righteous must wait for Yahweh to act. When a society is corrupt, the righteous must wait for Yahweh to act. I hope you'll see this in verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now, I fully expect verse 7 to be disappointing to some of us in the room this morning. That's the response, Micah? Especially in this age of activism? Micah says, look to the Lord. Micah says, wait. Micah, wait? What are you, some sort of pacifist? Wait? If you're like me, you don't like to be told to wait when you're facing hard situations. Christians, I'm not against movements or causes or activism. That is, if they're done for righteous causes based on clear biblical thinking and carried out with kindness and respect. Christians, we are salt and light. But organizing a movement to try to take back society was not Micah's response in his day. He says, I will look to the Lord. I will wait. His words reflect a deep confidence in God's plan, a deep trust in God's sovereignty. His words flow from a heart that believes in God and hopes that God will act at the appropriate time. His words should remind us of the Psalms, Psalm 38, 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. Psalm 130, verses 5 through 6, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Notice also that as Micah lives in this corrupt society, as he's looking for the Lord to act, as he's looking for the Lord to intervene, as he does this, Micah does not have to personally participate in any of the wickedness around him. He can walk in his own integrity no matter what others are doing. Notice what he says in verse seven, but as for me. He indicates that his manner of life will be different than everyone else's around him. Others may betray both friend and justice, but Micah will love his neighbor. Chapter six, verse eight, Micah will do justice love steadfast love and walk humbly with his God. Others may excel at doing evil, but he will aim to excel at pleasing the Lord. Remember, this is not the first time Micah has said, but as for me. Back in chapter three, verse eight, he said the same thing. He said, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And so the other prophets were wicked, but Micah didn't have to be. 
The false prophets told lies, but Micah would tell the truth of the word as the Lord gave him utterance. The false prophets were filled with this motivation for greed and to fill their bellies, but Micah was filled with the Spirit, and he stared down his wicked generation, and he said to them, but as for me. And Micah was not the only one like this in the Old Testament. You'll remember with me the famous words from Joshua in Joshua 24. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The psalmist said the same thing. Do not sweep away my soul with sinners or my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes, But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Christian friends, no matter how dark the times, no matter how wicked the world, no matter how deep the corruption and the power of God's spirit, God's people can stand up and say, but as for me. Micah did not have the power to control or change the societal situation around him, but he could walk in his own personal integrity. And friends, at the most important level, please hear this this morning, integrity is not something that is taken, it is something that is surrendered. Nobody can take your integrity from you. You can make a decision to give it away. Not only did Micah wait on the Lord to act, refuse to participate in the evil of his age, but notice also how he seems to absolutely treasure his personal relationship with God in the midst of all of this. Look at the possessive pronouns in verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation my God will hear me. He seems to draw more and more confidence for daily living from the reality that he knows this God, that Yahweh is the God of his salvation. His future deliverance will come through this God. Yahweh is his God who will surely hear his prayers. His deliverance will come through Yahweh either in the present or certainly in the future when Yahweh sends his shepherd king, the chosen one who will one day come and stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord so that God's people will be shepherded, protected, and secure. Believers in Christ, This side of the cross, thousands of years later, what a sweet privilege to know that the God of heaven is our God. He hears our prayers, and his son Jesus is coming again to rule in righteousness and forever defend his people. And in the darkest of times, we must treasure this Jesus and draw great comfort from our close and personal relationship with God that only comes through Jesus Christ. Our life is in him, and our hope is in him. So what are we going to do this morning with this ancient paragraph from Micah the prophet? Well, at our church, Lakewood, we have Lakewood Lessons. 
I couldn't think of anything cool to alliterate for you all, and so instead, we'll just do lessons for the marketplace. A few take-home points of application, if you will. What should we do with this passage? Number one this morning, since our society is corrupt, preach the gospel. Since our society is corrupt, preach the gospel. Are you saddened by the decay in our own society? I hardly need to chronicle the corruption for you. A previous generation of Christians thought they could transform society through political activism. The story of the moral majority is a story of a failed strategy that was fueled by sincere motives. Friends, what this world ultimately needs is not for Christians to lead boycotts, to hire lobbyists, or to get the right people in office. Yes, there's a place for being salt and light, and we need Christians in government, and we should vote, and we should influence, and I get all that, and I support all of that, but the ultimate solution for a corrupt society is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, some level of evil can be held back and restrained in a society through legislation and law enforcement, but the transformation that we desire to see take place, this can only come from the inside out. It doesn't come from the outside in. It only comes when the Holy Spirit changes someone from the in at the heart level. And the Holy Spirit only does this to individuals who receive the good news of Jesus Christ. For if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And people are not going to receive the gospel unless it's preached. Don't we need a reminder of that every single week? People aren't going to be saved unless they hear the gospel. How are they going to hear without a preacher? And how are they going to respond to a message that they've never heard? Are you hungry to share the gospel? When was the last time that the Lord gave you the opportunity, this wide open door in the middle of your daily life, to just speak up and share the entire gospel with somebody? Earlier this week, I had one of those opportunities. Me and this other guy at this resort, we were both locked out of the gym. What sort of resort doesn't open their gym until 9 a.m., all right? <laughs> I was peeved, and this guy next to me was kind of peeved. And we ended up running together, and I found out he was here uh, in Florida from Mexico on business, a former Roman Catholic who just decided about three or four months ago to start reading the Bible for himself an hour every day. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Colossians 4 says we should be praying for opportunities like that. And so if you want to see the best and ultimate kind of change in our society, preach the good news of Jesus. And as it is received through repentance and faith in Christ, then guess what will happen? People who used to be zealous for their sin will become zealous for good works, Titus chapter 2. People who used to betray neighbor will start to love neighbor instead. People who used to be unfaithful to their spouse will start to love their wife as Jesus Christ loved his church and gave himself for it. Do you see how this works? If you want to change society, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit will change hearts. Number two, since our society is corrupt, 
demonstrate what spirit-produced, righteous living looks like. Show people a Christian life. Do you realize that the corruption and decay all around us forms a dark canvas against which the brightness of a Christian life can shine so brilliantly? In other words, in the midst of all the decay around you, show people a righteous life, not a self-righteous life, but a life that the Holy Spirit is actually transforming to look like this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. For example, in a dishonest society, Christian, you can be a person of integrity in all of your dealings. In a world of bribery, don't let others show you special favors if you're rich or powerful or influential in this community. If you're in business, don't award contracts because of kickbacks or privileges that you expect to receive. If you have influence, use it for biblical justice and righteous causes. Be faithful in your relationships. Do not betray your neighbors. Love your parents. Be faithful to your spouses. Friends, this is not legalism. This is just Christianity 101. It's the fruit of conversion. And now more than ever, basic Christianity is powerfully attractive in the midst of a society that is collapsing. And this is what Jesus meant when he taught us, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Number three, since our society is corrupt and since Christ divides family members, prioritize spiritual relationships in the family of Christ. There are people in the room this morning that feel the relationship dysfunction that Micah described in verses five and six. And it's because of corruption in society, yes, but it's even more because they follow Christ and their family has rejected them because of it. Remember how Christ prepared his disciples for this sort of cost for following him, and he quoted Micah in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 38, when he said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household." Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And I don't know your story. But in a room this large, some feel as though they have lost a father or a mother or a daughter or a son or an in-law because they have chosen Christ instead. Young man reached out to me a couple of weeks ago and he said, Pastor, could we get together? I want to tell you some things going on in my life. And I said, yes, let's get together. He said, you don't know this, but I've been dating this young woman and she's, she's not a Christian. And this last week she came to me and she said, so what is it going to be? Is it going to be, is it going to be this religious stuff or is it going to be me? And he said, Pastor, I've not been following Christ. 
And I want you to know I chose Jesus. And I broke off the relationship. Have you lost any close human relationships because of Jesus? This is very real. But friends, God has designed that some of that sting can be taken away when we realize that the church is the family of God. That's what Paul means when he calls it the household of God in 1 Timothy 3.15. And Jesus says that those who do the will of his Father are his very family. And so as society is collapsing and crumbling and decaying around us, and when we feel the ripples of that in our own personal lives, one of the action steps that we must take is we must look around on a Sunday morning and say, this is my spiritual family in Christ, and we must love one another fiercely because of it, which means that petty spats don't divide us. It means differences of opinion about political decisions don't divide us. It means that we're family in Jesus, and we need one another now more than ever. Number four, since our society is corrupt, look for the return of Christ who brings the kingdom. Look for the return of Christ His kingdom is the perfect society, and Jesus is the perfect king. And Micah waited for the Lord. Micah looked for the Lord, his salvation. And Christian friends, in the midst of societal decay, we must do the same, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our shepherd king. He's the one that Micah describes in chapter 5. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will dwell secure, for now he will be great to the ends of the earth. When society is collapsing, our hope is in him, we look for him, and we long for him. 